Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, Oh, sorry, I've stopped inside. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And though he lives and believes in me, he will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. Spoke to her discreetly. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she went quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They supposed she was going to the tomb, and they followed her. When Jesus reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly what her sister had said. Then Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them also said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there will be a bad odour, for he has been in there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of these people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and with a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes, and let him go. We'll stop our reading the passage just there. I mentioned that this is the final sign. There are seven which you've heard about in recent weeks. And I wonder if you remember what they are. What was the first thing that we heard about in John chapter 2? Correct. Water, turning water into wine. Mary came to Jesus and asked. How about the second one in John chapter 4? No. The healing of the royal official's son. Jesus spoke, and then they told the royal official, it was at that moment when he spoke, your son was healed. Third one. Give you a clue. Rolls a pool. The healing of a paralytic at the pool of death later. I'll be honest with you, if you'd asked me this question, I would have sat there. I wouldn't have remembered all seven I had to check. The fourth, John chapter 6, the only part of the chapter. The healing of the 5,000. 
And in the second half of the same chapter, when the disciples were out in their boats in the storm, walking on the water. Sixth one, already mentioned it, healing of a blind man. Yes. It's all building up. These are all components which fit together. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, he said there are many more miracles which are not recorded here. But John has selected these seven because they culminate in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this is hugely significant, as I hope, if I do justice to this, we'll see. We're told that Lazarus was in Bethany. There's more than one Bethany. At the start of the Gospel, we hear about John baptising in Bethany. That's a different location. They sent a message to Jesus to the sisters, the one who knew not the sick. Where did it go, did it? Starts at verse 6. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two days. Surprising, don't you? We're told that he loved Mary and Martha, he loved Lazarus. We're told no details about those relationships, particularly as far as Lazarus is concerned, but we are told that he loved him, he was special to him, had a close relationship. And yet he didn't respond immediately. Save to say, this illness will not result in death. Such was Jesus' authority in the situation. He knew. He knew. And that word yet, that I asked you to remember when I read through it, Perhaps better translated is therefore. There was purpose in it. He wanted to wait. Because if you do the arithmetic on the geography of the situation, there was no way Jesus could get there to the point where he would have died anyway. So he wanted it to be four days. Why? Because there was a sort of superstition around at those times that it took three days for you to sort of completely die. By the fourth day, you could say, yes, he's properly dead. But smell it too. As I've already said, that situation with blind man, Jesus knew this situation was orchestrated for the revealing of God's glory and also for his own glorification. There's that alignment coming together there. The profundity of these statements is, is there for us to see. At the wedding in Cana, when Mary asked Jesus for help, he first of all said, my time hasn't come. But he nonetheless helped out and did a fantastic job, as we know. It's important to stress that God is not capricious in his dealings with us. Many, many, many months ago, Richard used that word in a sermon. I had to go home and check it out. Capricious. It means just sort of fanciful, tinkering with your life, doing things in an arbitrary way. No. There is purpose in God's dealing in our lives. The circumstances we confront, there is purpose within them. I had a very week last week, and it all fell apart on Wednesday when I watched a remote technician destroy my computer. Consequences of that were very significant. We depend on these things, don't we? And they said, there's nothing more we can do. We're going to have to send a technician to you. He'll be with you within 24 hours. I said, I'll be gone in six. I won't be back until next week. Is it Theo that you're going to send to me? Yes, it is. 
Can you see a pill come? Well, I was shown an email from somebody in Derby who sent to Theo, and he says, Theo, if you can find an opportunity to go this afternoon to help Peter out, he says you're a very nice chap. <laughs> <laughs> that man worked until nine o'clock at night to de-encrypt my hard drive and get the data out. And then he came out the following day and worked till ten o'clock the following night to restore my computer. I sent something about the man, and I went to say to him, Theo, you have a real certain car. I've hedged my bets. And I said, you have a very gracious spirit. I should have stuck with the opening bet. Because he said, I'm a born-again Christian. This is how I serve people. In Romans 8, 28, it says, for those who believe, the circumstances come upon us, my paraphrase, the circumstances that come upon us work together for our good. I spent a lot of time with that man. We encouraged each other. It's going on lately to a conference at this church in London and we share more about that. And so I realised, well, even in this, even in this apparent catastrophe, I have purpose. It's my way of showing to you. Even if you think technicians in Delhi are useless and they wreck the computer, I am in control. Very reassuring my computer concerned that God's in control. No one did anything else. Especially the modern operating systems, but that's another subject. <laughs> You have a tough week for other reasons, but I sense God within it. It says, don't preach when you're weak and you're strong. And then expect not to have periods when you feel weak. No. No. I sense it. It's like I said, hedge my bets. I should have accepted it. Are you a born again Christian? No. I should have done that, shouldn't I? Yeah. <clears throat> but we encourage each other. There's something in there, so. Now then, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. God's Son may be glorified through it. And that's hugely significant. God seeks in every circumstance we confront for His glory to be revealed. We have success. We do well to become like a mirror and reflect. Reflect. It's glory back. It says ourselves in another verse, doesn't it? We've already seen that Jesus decides it's time now to go. And his disciples caution him. Last time we were there, Lord, they tried to stone you. Do you really want to go back? And he gives this cryptic response. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? What's he saying to them? If you are in the company of the light of the world, then I will not allow anything to befall you. It's if you're in the darkness that you're under threat. That's where we stumble. If I am with you, then I will orchestrate what happens, because I am the sovereign one. I am the Lord. If there's to be harm to anyone, it will be because I allow it. If there's to be a consequence, it will be because I orchestrate it. But this is the thing about being the Lord and Savior. This is the one about being the sovereign. Then you're taking part to tell me something. You have authority over the situation. And I'm glad to be frank with you, that Jesus has authority over my situation. Because sometimes I feel like I am neglected to be visible. It's good to know there's a higher authority at work to whom we can turn. I mentioned to you this four day interval was significant. Obviously, it was distressing for Lazarus, Lazarus' sisters and his family that he died. But to any of the onlookers or the skeptics or whoever, they would know that he was certainly dead. There was no doubt about this. And we have this exchange 
Martha says to him, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Strange statement, isn't it? You didn't ask him to begin with to go there, just send along with your love sick. So would you come? You should set the message. Maybe there was an expectation in it. They should have known that he only has to speak. They'd seen examples of it. And Jesus responded to her comment, which was theologically correct, but not quite right in the circumstance. I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives in me, even though he dies, will live. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. You can compare that with Peter's reaction, where Jesus says to Peter, who do people say that I am? And he gives you some suggestions. And then Jesus says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? <laughs> Peter says, you are Christ. For all his flaws and foibles, I take a lot of encouragement from Peter. The other put his foot in it, but spot on. But he puts him on foot in it. Maybe I'll get this spot on. Heaven and earth shall live this to Jesus. You are the Christ. She knew that much. Then Martha summons her sisters, we said. She discreetly goes to see Jesus, but everybody comes along. And this is significant. If you come to uh, verse 13. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, I'm not a great student of Greek or interpretation, but having prepared for this, I find that that's not really a very adequate translation. Richard would probably do more justice to this remark than I. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled is probably better rendered that he was angry. He was angry, he was agitated. And why? Because he's the author of life. And here is death trying to supplant that authority. So he was, it says deeply moved and troubled, but he was actually hostile towards the situation. He was agitated that death was trying to assert itself over the life of whom he was the author. Come and see Lord, they said, and he asked where he was. Jesus wept. It's interesting that, sadly I have many colleagues who use this statement as an expression. Jesus wept, that sense. It's an expression of exasperation or frustration, isn't it? But that wasn't the case here. This was Jesus' empathy with those in their situation. Elsewhere it says, he rejoices with those who rejoice and he weeps with those who weep. This is an example of this. Such was his love for the people there. He empathized with them and he was engaging with their sorrow. See how he loved them, the Jews said, so they recognized it. But then some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man stop this man dying? So there's all this kind of maelstrom of uncertainty and misunderstanding and everything. Jesus would have heard or sensed all of that. So he's now back in this mode of hostility. I'm not going to allow death to assert itself over life. I'm not going to allow this enemy to prevail over me because I have power over it. And so he said, take away the stone, which they did. You saw the little picture down there. First of all, offers a prayer of thanksgiving. You notice that? It's not a prayer of intercession or petition or supplication. He says, first of all, did I not tell you if you believed you'd see the glory of God? Put the stone away. And then he says, Father, I thank you that you've always heard me.
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, so they believe, may believe that you have sent me. This is the whole key, it's building all together so people understand why. You know, when they load the man to the roof and store him all the other gospels, and Jesus says to them all listening, and the skeptics too, is it easy to say your sins are forgiven or you can get up and walk? I haven't told them that his sins are forgiven, then said get up and walk, and he did. Jesus demonstrates by his actions the authority of what he says. And that's the prevailing frame throughout all that we're told about his life on earth. He offers a prayer of thanksgiving. He knew what was happening. And then he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. I wonder what went through the minds of people there. We know the story from the other end, don't we? In the same way that Jesus healed the royal official son, in chapter 4, or elsewhere, the centurion servant, you know where the man came, Jesus would have gone there. Jesus would have gone to the centurion servant, but he said, you don't need to go. I'm a man of authority. You just give the word, I know my servant will be well. Strange, different response and situation. What happens here is something incredible. Jesus offers a much mightier word, and over a much greater distance. Why? Because the word that he offers spans the gap between the living and the dead. That is a span of infinite proportions. But he spans it nonetheless and says, Lazarus, come out. <coughs> and so, Lazarus comes out of the tomb, covered in the great place. What does Jesus say? Take off the great place. And let him go. <coughs> they would have unwrapped him. And there would have been no decay of habit. And he would have walked. And they would have witnessed it. So Jesus said, I am the resurrection of the life. Even if a man dies, he will live. And he demonstrated it unequivocally before their eyes. Beyond any dispute. The same man they put in the tomb walked out of his own volition. Astonishing. We're already told about this account in John, which has led some people to question its authenticity. But then, there are other significant miracles of Jesus in the other Gospels, which John does not record. And as I've already told you, at the back end of this Gospel, he said there are many more things which aren't recorded here. He selected what happened in order that we grasp the significance when they're coupled together. This was the culmination this was the theological climax of Jesus' public ministry. Preparing the onlookers, the skeptics, the accusers, the faithful, whoever. This all builds together. And the great culmination is coming. Because I am the author of life. And for you to receive it, I must die. They sang about it earlier. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. Somebody once said to me, not here present, somebody once said to me, I can't remember speaking of that game, they said, you should rein in your emotions. I said, that's difficult. Because <laughs> if I'm talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, what he's done for me, it stirs my emotions. It stirs his too. I can't just do that in a dead kind of way. I can't speak about it academically. 
If I die, personally, if I die, you might live. You'd feel a certain debt towards me, wouldn't you? You'd speak about it fondly. You'd say, he considered his life less valuable than my own, and I might continue. But if I die for you, you'll die nonetheless. Lazarus, although he came out of the tomb, he ended up back in there, at a future stage, of that we can be sure. And then, as Martha had said, then he will be resurrected finally in the last day. But this was the precursor to what was going to happen with Jesus. A death and a resurrection that would never be circumvented, that would never rise, never to die again. And death, death is the great threat, isn't it? People don't like to talk about it, try to black it out. I've conducted a few funerals, as you know. And the empathy that you can show, the assistance you can give people to come to terms with those things, it's, 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 it's quite a delicate process. For the world doesn't know what it means, it's like a frontier. But for us, it is no longer that. In the example of Lazarus, and then of course, in Jesus' death and resurrection, it is complete. If I die, it is but a pause. It's but an interruption. Because my eternity is with Christ. Death has no threat. The grave cannot hold us. Because of what Jesus has done. And like every single thing that Jesus says, he authenticates it by his words and his actions. That's why it says at the start of the chapter, you know, the Word is with God, the Word was God, and the Word was life. Jesus is the Word! And here he spoke a word that bridged the gap between life and death and brought Lazarus back. And he went in the tomb knowing that he would be raised from the dead. When we had the Passion Play this year in the square, I was almost overcome as we walked out of the square. The director's very strict about it. Walk out and summon. There's no engagement with people there. When you're back in the room, then you can start talking. It's difficult to hold it back. I was so emotional. I thought, this is a reenactment, but this is true. This happened. And I played the part of one of the people who put him there, but it had to be that way. We're not going to look at the second half of this chapter. But in that occasion, not only was this the climax, as I said, it beckoned what was to come, because that convinced the Jews of their need to eliminate him. Jesus knew that would be the outcome. Incredible, isn't it? They plotted his death. They didn't realise that was all part of the plan that he had set forth. He wasn't going to die a moment before the time that he had appointed to do so. So, don't give up, folks. Don't lose heart. Don't let the world threaten you and give in. Recognize this one who's gone before us, who's died, overcome, and risen again. And he's jealously guarding over each one of your lives. Why? Because of the investment he made to get you to this point. You might be fulfilled, that you might accomplish the potential you set before you. That is so exciting. Scary at times, but exciting. So the message today is clear. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in him will live, even 
Take from this, Lord, what you wish to say, and lodge it firm in our hearts. We are here at your disposal. We are here to do your bidding. We are here to reflect your glory, not to gather it for ourselves. Lead us, guide us, and be beside us.